ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Daniel, the book of Daniel chapter 6, Daniel chapter 6. This is the last chapter in the, the story, the narrative portion of the book of Daniel. There are 12 chapters, 6 are narrative and story, and 6 are prophetic and looking forward. This is the last chapter of the story portion. Now, we will see Daniel in other situations uh, as we get into the the final six chapters. But uh, it's worth just pausing here and uh, noting that when we begin in chapter 1, Daniel is a a very young man, a teenager, uh, likely a young teenager. And when we get to chapter 6, he is a very old man. 80s or 90s, um, he cannot be much younger than that. Um, So this is uh, really the summation of key events in a man's life, and it culminates uh, very impactfully, I think, in chapter 6. Chapter 6 might give us um, our most in-depth look at the man himself. We've seen Daniel involved in a lot of things. Um, Chapter 6 gives us Maybe it's our closest look during the story portion of Daniel as a person. Um, So let's just begin now. We'll pause where appropriate and make comment through chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom and over these three governors of whom Daniel was one that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. And we just pause there. Let's get the story. If you were here last week, you know that the Babylonian Empire has come to an end, a sudden end. Um, If you were here weeks ago when we were looking at the statue that Nebuchadnezzar envisioned in his dream in Daniel chapter 2, he was told by God that he would be a glorious, splendid kingdom, but after him would come a kingdom inferior to him in terms of splendor, but no less significant in terms of its conquering the whole earth. Um, This kingdom has come, and they are the Medo-Persian Empire, often remembered historically as just the Persian Empire. This is the glorious height of the Persian Empire in ancient times. It's called the Medo-Persian Empire because to conquer Babylon, there was an alliance of two people groups, the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians. The Persians were the dominant faction, and from the Persians, Cyrus the Great is the great world leader that history remembers, uh, leading the Persians to this victory. Now, Darius is a person much like Belshazzar was until recent archaeological discoveries whom we know very little about historically. In fact, there are all kinds of thoughts about who Darius is. Chapter 6 is not naive to the fact that Cyrus is ruling and reigning. If you want to look ahead to the last verse of the chapter, you can see there is a reference in 28 of Daniel 6 that this is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. But there is a man named Darius ruling specifically in Babylon. And this guy coming into power suddenly and quickly, given the monumental task of governing the great city of Babylon as the root of power in the former dominant empire of the world, appoints uh, a lot of satraps, in other words, a lot of administrators, 
Some of them were no doubt carryovers from the previous Babylonian administration because that would make sense. Um, It would make sense if you were coming to rule in a new city with a new people in a new place that you were unfamiliar with, that you would simply seek to employ a lot of the same people who'd been doing the regular day-to-day jobs of keeping things going uh, under the new administration. And so we get a sense, logically so, that a lot of the same people have probably been retained. And yet over uh, those 120 satraps, there are three particular leaders, one of whom is our Daniel. Now, Um, If you thought back to chapter 5, you might remember that it does not appear that Daniel is in the ruling class anymore um, at the end of the Babylonian Empire. Um, He is summoned from retirement, and he uh, he had certainly lived a life long enough to deserve it at that point in time. And so he's summoned and he offers Belshazzar, the last king in the city of Babylon, Uh, his doomsday uh, interpretation of the writing on the wall. And then he is very quickly raised to a prominent position, uh, third in the empire, as Belshazzar had promised him, and then the kingdom in that same evening is conquered. So Daniel has this uh, incredible um, event happen on the eve of the Persians taking over, and I would assume there was some carryover in the just the incredible nature of that event. I mean, he is elevated, he is robed, he is given uh, gold rings, he is promoted into this, uh, this uh, leadership role, and when the, when the king is killed, I mean, he's, he's uh, in a ruling position himself to hand over the city to the Persians. And so he's a logical choice to be one of these three leaders, and he certainly had the career to justify uh, helping advise this new administration. So this is an old Daniel. Notice the summary of why Daniel is elevated, that the satraps might give account to them, this is verse 2, so that the king would suffer no loss. You know, uh, tumultuous times are not always good to kings and managers and leaders and and business owners, etc. And uh, it's possible to suffer great loss in the middle of these times. You could have revolts, you could have revolutions, you could have people starving and uprising, you could have, you know, and so, and so this is Daniel and, and the two guys rolling with him and, and these, it's their job to make sure this is as smooth as possible for the king. Verse three. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Now, it's unclear if the whole realm means all of the Persian empire, which to me seems unlikely. More than that, setting him over Babylon and all the local Babylonian provinces. In other words, Darius was not taking the place of Cyrus, the great king who had conquered, but Darius was responsible for probably the most important piece of real estate, the most important populace, and the most important cities in the entire empire because Babylon had been essentially the capital of the known world. And so Darius uh, begins to muse, boy, this Daniel really seems to know what he's doing. He's really helped here. Uh, boy, we, had that, we almost had that crisis, and uh, that, was, that was really good advice. And so he begins to muse with his own counselors, with his own people. Hey, what would you guys think if, if, if we just set Daniel into like a governor position? What would you guys think? And Darius is saying this probably without any expectation that the people whom he's musing this over with would have any sort of malicious mind towards 
Daniel. After all, Daniel had been a really well-known guy in the Babylonian Empire. Why would Darius assume that, you know, Daniel had all these enemies who didn't like him? <laughs> Why would he assume that? And so he's musing this over, and these guys are like, oh, yeah, so you're thinking about, about doing that maybe, huh? huh? And, and the real problem here is Daniel is in an isolated political faction. Um, unless Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been blessed with long life, and unless other faithful Jewish people had emerged, he is, for all we know, in a party of one at this point in time. And it's a very different worldview than the other rulers in Babylon. And they are none too pleased that this Jew is in uh, discussions to become their boss. Okay? So, verse 4, the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. Uh, we're pretty familiar with that, right? You don't have to watch much television or read too many news articles to see all sorts of political maneuvering to find all sorts of charges and allegations from one person to the next. I think it pretty much dominates the news cycle right now. Someone should be charged or is charged. Or, I mean, that's, that's this is as, as ancient as ancient times. Let's find some, let's find some, some fault here. Then let, let's consider the second part of verse 4 as a personal challenge for us as believers, okay? But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. If you will allow me a little leeway here, Daniel didn't have any uh, laptops hanging around. Yeah. Uh, Daniel didn't have any uh, investments that might raise questions, you know, about insider information. Uh, you know, Daniel uh, had not uh, taken care of, uh, of his own in some lavish way by having his name thrown around. You know, Daniel didn't have any uh, conspiracies floating around. There were no mistresses wandering around. He hadn't cheated on anything. He hadn't secretly stashed away a fortune for himself. Daniel was a, an upright man, and they couldn't find a, a political uh, accusation that would carry enough gravity against him to do the job here. And so they say, we're not going to find anything against this guy. He seems to be one of the, the, the genuine uh, faithful leaders here, unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Now, that's where we're at in our country today, isn't it? Um, you know, we are not unfamiliar with people having a problem with us as believers because of the law of our God. And that's, that's where Daniel was too. If we're going to find something here, it's going to have to be his weakness. His one weakness here is he is faithful not only to the king and not only to the kingdom, but he is faithful to this God. Verse 6. So the governors and the satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and the satraps, the counselors, the advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish 
the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. So the, the Persians had uh, what we recognize historically as a pretty interesting way of, of establishing ordinances and laws. And this comes up in the Bible. It also comes out in extra uh, biblical, uh, biblical material too. The Persians had uh, this, this system where when the king decreed a law, and it was really designed to fight corruption, honestly. Even the king himself, once it was signed, sealed and delivered could not alter it you know it was a way of of keeping any particular ruler governor king in an area from manipulating things in a fluid but the babylonians did not have that rule nebuchadnezzar could do whatever he wanted he could change his mind left and right but uh in persia and again this comes up even later in the old testament when the king submitted a statute and sealed it and gave his approval it was immutable could not be changed um they're not being honest here, I would assume. We're not told, but I would assume when they say that every leader, governor, and satrap agrees with this. It doesn't seem like Daniel would have gone along with this kind of thing. And Daniel doesn't appear to be present at the recommendation of it unless he's just quietly sitting in the background, kind of the old guy in the corner just watching things unfold. I don't know, but this is what they deliver. I would say, just to make a quick comment, um, and this not the, you know, the 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 meat and the potatoes, wherever Scarlet is, she thought that was a funny phrase for me to use this morning. That, this, uh, that she may be in the back. That, this is not the main bulk of the sermon, but it's interesting to me how many Christians might perhaps um, go through a 30-day period with this ordinance and never even realize that they weren't violating it. Um, it is quite possible in our day and age that many professing Christians could go these 30 days without praying uh, to God or worshiping God and not even realize that they were doing something strange. Um, God is not a part of their lives in any meaningful way. They identify with the God of Israel, but they don't have a regular prayer life. They don't have a regular pattern of worship. And I'm reminded just in passing of James 4.8, I looked this up this morning, where we have the council, which is a, a repetition from the Old Testament, uh, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And we see Daniel's pattern unfold in chapter 6 as he does this. On the flip side of that, of me recommending to you a, a regular discipline of drawing near to God, there's the words of Jesus in Matthew 15, 8 that we should be equally concerned with. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Um. Let us, if, if we want to know God, let us, let's truly seek to know God. Let's truly draw near to Him, not just with lip service of worship, but let's, let's genuinely seek out a relationship with our Creator, faithfully doing so. So it says, verse 9, Therefore King Darius signed the written decree. Now verse 10, here's where uh, I'm going to settle in for a, a minute or two. I get three observations beginning in verse 10. Let's just read it. It says, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day, and he prayed and he gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. So notice three things here in, in, in that verse. Number one, when Daniel finds out about this decree, which essentially condemns him to death if he prays or worships God, it says, very simply, he went home. Um, no indication of panic. 
He doesn't run to the king and make a personal appeal. He doesn't get down on his knees and beg and plead. Maybe he had stood up prior to this and argued his point valiantly. Darius's reaction to what follows seems to indicate, though, that Daniel didn't. I mean, Darius seems to realize his heir here, because he doesn't want to see Daniel killed. He seems to realize, oh my gosh, I didn't even think about Daniel. Like, he seems to realize that. So there's no indication that Daniel has raised any alarm here at all. He finds out that this has been written. He finds out that it's been signed. He finds out that his enemies have succeeded. And he goes home. And... Much like Daniel here, Paul in 2 Timothy 1.7 is living as a condemned man. That letter in 2 Timothy uh, is a letter, you know, as I've said very often, from a condemned man. He's imprisoned, but it's, it's the dungeon kind of prison in 2 Timothy. And he does not expect to live. He, 2 Timothy is the letter where Paul says, even now my life is being poured out as a drink offering to the Lord. Now, he doesn't say that in, the, in many of his other letters. In other letters, he, he maintains you know, a, a, a hopefulness that God is going to physically rescue him and send him back out into the, into the mission field. You, know, you might be familiar with Paul's writing, you know, for me to, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Nevertheless, I'm sure that I will live for your benefit. But in 2 Timothy, he knows he's, he's condemned and he does not expect Uh, to be spared. And he says this, Timothy, I want you to remember something. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Um, I think that you have to live some years to get to where uh, Daniel is and where Paul um, is in 2 Timothy. I think you have to live some years. Not that you have to live some years for God to give us uh, a spirit of power and love and a sound mind, but, but to apply a faith in God that persists through promises, you have to go through some things. At least that's my testimony. Daniel has been through some things, and he's not afraid. He's not panicking here. Um, it's, it's okay as a Christian to understand that this is a serious situation. It's okay as a Christian to understand that this is a threatening situation. It's good to see danger where danger exists. But it's not okay as a Christian to be captured by fear and to be uh, uh, ruled by fear and to have your actions and your words and your sentiment dictated by fear because God has not given us a spirit of fear. And when you feel yourself being gripped by worry, by fear, by concern, by alarm, even by panic at something that you hear, something that's happening, you need to remind yourself that that feeling is not from God. It doesn't mean the situation is not from God. It doesn't mean that God is not in control. But that feeling, that very natural human reaction to danger lurking is not from God. And, and sometimes the right thing to do is to just go home and pray. Daniel went home. Second observance here. He prays three times. He prays three times and it says giving thanks before his God. That's why I read the call to worship this morning from Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King, for his mercy endures forever. And it repeats it over 
Three times at the beginning of Psalm 136, give thanks to God for His mercy endures forever. Verse 2, give thanks to God for His mercy endures forever. Verse 3, give thanks to God for His mercy endures forever. And then it gets into all the poetry of the one who created, His mercy endures forever. The one who did this, His mercy endures forever. But three times at the beginning, give thanks to God for His mercy endures forever. Another psalm, Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That's Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. Daniel's concern is primarily with honoring God and thanking Him for His deliverance and thanking Him for His mercy, thanking Him for His daily bread, thanking Him for what God is doing. He gives thanks three times. Not many of us have the spiritual clarity when there's an alarming, panicky situation to go home and to get on our hands and knees and say, Father, I want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that is the heart of faith. Three times that day, Daniel goes home and gives thanks. The third observation here, notice it says this was his custom since the early days, since his youth, since young periods of time. Now you think about Daniel. He had been in Babylon a long time. Upwards of 70 years. It says in the text that he would open his window toward Jerusalem. Um, so his custom was to go and pray three times, opening his window towards Jerusalem. Now here's, here's what you should consider about that. When Daniel was a teenager, the city of Jerusalem, the capital of God's people, where the one true living God was worshipped faithfully, was destroyed. Completely destroyed. There is no Jerusalem right now. There's no one living in Jerusalem. There's no temple in Jerusalem. There are no priests worshipping God in Jerusalem. There's nothing there. It's barren. It is desolate. You get a glimpse of that in the, in the books that follow in the Old Testament where they go back to rebuild it. There's nothing there. And for 70 years... His custom has been to open his windows and to face the place where the temple of God once stood and to pray three times. That strikes me as a remarkable discipline. He did not look towards a Jerusalem that was there. He looked towards a Jerusalem that by faith he believed God would bring. He did not look towards a kingdom that was present. He looked towards a kingdom that by faith he believed God would usher in. He did this day after day after day, multiple times. And as he looked toward the city, which he could not see, which he only imagined by faith, he gave thanks to God through all of these various hardships. And Daniel knew hardships. 1 Peter chapter 1 speaks to us of how a believer's faith is refined in the fire, in the hardships. And you, you look at an old, an old guy like Daniel and you ask yourself, how does someone become like this? By suffering. By suffering 
and by trusting God and by thanking Him for His salvation and His promises and looking toward them in faith over and over and over again. It's a very impressive thing. Verse 10 is a very impressive verse. All right, verse 11. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, knelt down on his hands and knees three times that day, prayed, gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king, and they spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the captives from, the, from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. As a parent, I can tell you that whenever a child comes to me and says, Dad, didn't you say you would do this it, I'm never very pleased with the next part of the conversation, whatever it is. Um, that's what they're doing. They go to the king. Hey, uh, didn't you say that anybody who prays or petitions anybody but you for 30 days is going to go to the lion's den? And the king, just like me, you know, I don't know where this is going, but yes, okay. Well, I don't know what's coming next, but I'm probably not going to like it. He says, yes, I did. And then they say, Daniel. Daniel. And this is why I think it's, it seems unlikely that Daniel had really made a big argument against this law because look at the king's reaction here. Verse 14, and the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. This is not a godly man, but this is an honorable man. And set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. I, 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 my interpretation of he labored is he looked for legal loopholes. <laughs> he looked for political maneuvering. Perhaps he started calling in satraps and governors and was like, what's it going to take to make this go away? I don't, you know, he looked, he worked hard. He did not just say, oh, that stinks. You know, he didn't do that. He sets himself politically, legally, governmentally to the task of securing Daniel's release. Um, and I assume, since that doesn't happen, that these men are unbudging, which is a bold thing, since whether or not Daniel dies in the lion's den or not, this is the king that you are going to continue to have to serve for quite a long time. So the king... They're not doing him any favors here. They're not negotiating here. They're not, they're not acquiring any political chips. They're firm on this. They want this guy done with. They don't want to deal with him anymore. Daniel. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, No, O king, you're trying to secure his release. No, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. They're like, look, hey, we would help you if we could, but there's nothing we can do, which is, of course, not true. They show no regard for the law when it 
when it serves their purposes, but this doesn't. So the king gave the command. Um, un unable to secure his release, he is faithful to his charge and to the law. And they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But, this is why I say this guy is honorable. He's faithful to the law. This is what the king should do. A just king follows the law. This is not a godly king. This is not a godly nation, not a godly law. But this is a just king. Nevertheless, he sees one possible loophole to the whole problem left to him. And this is what he says. Then the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. <laughs> now, he doesn't know that, and he doesn't spend the night behaving as if he believes that. And we're going to see that in a second. But there is one possible positive outcome left to him. When all other political maneuvering has failed, it could be <laughs> that Daniel's God will do something that the king himself is unable to secure. Verse 17, Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords. And the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Verse 18. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No musicians were brought before him. That might not seem like a big deal to you and I, but basically what that's saying is he didn't turn on ESPN and relax for the evening. You know, there, there was no entertainment that night. There was no relaxation. He went home and he spent the night fasting. Um, also, his sleep went from him. Um, I've had nights like those. I'm sure you've had nights like those. Then he arose very early in the morning, as I am wont to do when my sleep uh, <laughs> flees from me. And he went in haste to the den of lions. When he came to the den... He cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. It was a slim hope in his mind at this point in time. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me. And then two reasons here. First and foremost, because I was found innocent before him. And, by the way, also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. I was innocent before God. That is priority one. <laughs> if it means the lion's den, then it means the lion's den. If it means jail, then it means jail. But priority one for God's man, for God's woman, is that we live our lives in a way striving to be righteous, holy, blameless before the Lord. If that means we are guilty of all sorts of other things, okay. But priority one, I was innocent before him. And by the way, priority two, I, I didn't do anything wrong to you. Um. I didn't do anything of offense to you. Um, verse 23. Now the king was exceedingly glad 
for him, commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury was found on him because he believed in his God. What a testimony. <laughs> I mean, uh, I've never had anything like that that I know of, quite like that. Um, uh, it's remarkable. It's okay to say that. It's remarkable. This is the same uh, scriptures that see prophets stoned, sawn in half, uh, left for dead. Um, this is the same scriptures that sees Christians, you know, uh, eaten by animals in arenas. This is the same testimony here, but for God and His purposes, which we get the benefit of in the next six chapters, um, Daniel's life is spared. It would be great if the story ended there, I think. Um, it's a positive note. Nice, happy. Most Sunday school lessons, it stops right there. That's the end. Because the next part is not PG or even PG-13. The next part, take, you know, we get in, in, in trouble with the rating systems in the next part. And this is where I will remind you, Darius is an honorable man, not a godly man. He's not a servant of the Lord. Verse 24. And the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions. Now that feels like justice to me. Them, their children, and their wives. If that feels vindictive, I think it is. Um... Remember, the king is a new king. He's not been in power very long. He's just trying to do what's best for the kingdom. He thought all these guys were with him with the same goal. Let's do what's best for the kingdom. He mused about maybe it would be best if, like, if we just let Daniel you know, govern and, and rule and we reported to him because he's done this before. He's the, he's the oldest of all of us. You know, I'm speculating here. And, and he's doing a good job. He seems to be treating people well. Like... And he was doing this in an upright way. They conspire. And what's clearly now been a conspiracy. And he knows it's a conspiracy because of the way it's handled. And he tries to cash in all of his political chips and all of his motivations and they won't yield because they've got what they think they want. In their ambition and their desire for power, they lose sight of the fact that this is still the king. And now deeply offended, we can presume, and vindictive, this is what he does to them. And he makes a big example of it. And, and it's probably a pretty effective example. See, the Babylonians themselves, Nebuchadnezzar was known as a murderous, tyrannical kind of guy. He had no qualms about killing people and burning their homes down. Like that's, He ruled that way. And you don't see those authorities challenged very often. It's just the reality of it. Darius seems to have been ruling very benevolently, but with this outcome, it's unlikely that political opponents are going to rise and try to take him down again. He makes a big show of this. It's, it's cruel. It's gruesome. It sees the innocent perishing with the wicked. Innocent in the sense of this offense. That's what he does. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, 
Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. His dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions." So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Um, you ask, how is it that of all the various religious ideas and gods of ancient times, the God of the Bible has persevered, our holy scriptures have persevered, we have a testimony from God and an unbroken line of worship of the one true God of Israel. And not only has God survived, not only has the God of Israel survived all these various conqueries and manipulations, but the gospel has flourished throughout the entire known world so that this God, whom Nebuchadnezzar wrote to in chapter 4 concerning, whom uh, Darius writes here in chapter 6 concerning, this God is now worshipped on all the continents of the earth his name is proclaimed in nearly every nation and there are people hard at work to get his name proclaimed in nations where he is not known. You wonder how a God, a singular God, perseveres to this extent and it's because of things like this. Marduk did not have the power to preserve his name. When his people were conquered and defeated, he passed away. You could do that with Zeus, Apollos, whoever else you want to imagine from the ancient gods of old. One God is living. One God has a dominion that will never end. One God rules. And one God has the power to preserve his name. And he has and he will forever and ever. So you read something like this. Is this incredible? Absolutely. It's not human. It's divine. This is why we are in a building worshiping this God today. Because his worship, his kingdom, his dominion, his rule does not depend on human influence. He will be worshipped. He will be honored. He will be served because he is alive and powerful and will perform all that he has promised. He doesn't need us. He invites us to share in his kingdom. And there is a strong dichotomy here. There is a strong contrast between the people in the book of Daniel who are manipulating, pulling strings to try to gain power in the kingdom of the Babylonians and the kingdom of the Persians and Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego whose hope is not in the leaders that they serve or the kingdom in which they live but whose hope is purely in the God whom they love and who they are faithful to. There is a strong contrast between the two. And here we see that if you put your chips into the, the kingdom of this world, and if you put your wager, if you invest your time and your energy and your life and your resources, if you push yourself into the kingdom of this world, it will all come to nothing. And it does, dramatically so for the people. In an unjust way, we might argue, but it all comes to nothing because this world is perishing, the people in this world are not trustworthy, the kingdoms of this world are not trustworthy. It will fall apart. Not so with God's people, 
who are encouraged freely to commit themselves to the kingdom of God where they are promised citizenship, reward, and eternal life. Where they are promised life after death in such an instantaneous fashion that the New Testament says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We are offered a victory over death that is even described by Jesus as those who follow me will never die That's how instantaneous the transformation is. That's how instantaneous our citizenship will be upheld. And we are promised a citizenship in a kingdom that cannot be compromised. That's what Daniel knows here. And so when he finds out that all of his earthly life and possessions and acclaim are on the chopping block, he doesn't panic. He goes home and he prays and he thanks God because he's not being threatened with anything he didn't expect to lose. And everything that he has confidence in is out of reach of all of these guys, even the king himself. It is a freeing thing to know that our king, our God, is loving and merciful. Darius is not so merciful in this text. Darius's mercy does not endure. We don't even see it. It's, you did this to me, I do this to you. We serve a God who, though he knows every fault that we've ever committed, his mercy endures forever. That's a remarkable thing. Darius is behaving as a mere man. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3, Paul says, when, you, when there's strife and conflict among you, aren't you behaving as mere men? Aren't you just living like mere men? You're not living like children of God because our God has a love and a mercy that endures forever. I need a mercy that endures forever because I'm a sinful man. I'm not worthy of God's kingdom. I know my sin. I can say, in a sense as David did, my sin is ever before my face. I look in the mirror and I see what I am. I know what I am. I know what I am. It's not what I want to be. I can echo with Paul, O wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death. But I look in the mirror and I know what I am. I need a God whose mercy endures forever. Not endures until the fifth time I've failed or the sixth time I've failed. Not a mercy that endures until I mess something up really big. Until I have an affair. Until I cheat on something. Until I do something. And, you know, until I hurt someone. No. I need a God whose mercy endures forever. David had an affair. He hurt someone. God's mercy endures forever. I know who I am and I can say that. Do you know who you are? Can you say the same thing? Do you see your own sinfulness? Do you know what justice would mean for you? If you do, then you should have little trouble getting on your knees three times a day and thanking God because His mercy endures forever. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your mercy in my life. I thank you for your mercy in the life of my children, my wife, my biological family. 
and the family that I've grown up in here. I thank you for all that you've given us. I thank you for the way that you've sustained us and that you have blessed us. Working in more ways than we could possibly express gratitude for, hour by hour, in our hundreds of lives, week by week. I can't fathom a God whose presence is is here and whose knowledge is full and complete and who sees all that we do, all of us collectively, and continues to take the position of mercy rather than judgment or hostility. This should elicit from us a gratitude that is rarely expressed. For even though we are humiliated by sin, you would exalt us and lift us up and be gracious to us and bless us. You would honor us with your son Jesus. You would sustain us and keep us from falling. I thank you for your great faithfulness. And Father, I pray that wherever each of us are at individually around this room this morning, that you will give us the grace to continue in our progression of of spiritual growth and maturity so that we can be faithful here, following in the example of your Son, Jesus Christ, who was obedient even unto death. And I, I hope that death is not on the horizon for any of us. And yet, Father, my plea pastorally is that you will make us a people unafraid of death. Faithful to you, believing in your promises and empowered to live a life that few live. Thank you for your word and the treasure of knowledge inside of it. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.